Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. In each episode, we spotlight the numerous efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. It's planting time, so on this episode, we're talking about scouting and troubleshooting cover crop termination. Here's your host, Elise Koning. Thanks, Andy, and I'm happy to be here with a couple of guests who took time away from those busy few weeks that we call planting season here in Indiana. We have Jamie Scott. He's a Kosciuszko County farmer and member of the local Soil and Water Conservation District Board. Bill Johnson is also with us. He's a professor of weed science at Purdue University. Bill and Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. So since it's such a busy time of year, let's dive right in. Jamie, what's your experience with cover crops? We've been continuous cover crops on our farm for over 20 years now. Um, I also have a seed business where I help uh, move cover crops and and work with farmers. There's over 100,000 acres attached to my phone. So we've seen a lot of successes and failures uh, that can help people, um, you know, not uh, go down the wrong road um, and be more successful. And we're recording this episode on April 20th, so we're seeing a lot of farmers out in the field planting. What's it look like up in your area? Well, last week was 80 degrees and and um, everyone was wanting to go do something. Um, you know, this week is a lot cooler, some rain in the forecast. And so now they're wondering, you know, what they should be doing. Um, you know, as far as spraying, we saw some guys spray cover crops last week, um, hopefully a little slower to maybe not do anything this week with the way the weather has been and, and the cool night temperatures. Bill, what's your experience with cover crops and what kinds of planting action have you seen around the state? Well, with regard to the, the first question, we've, we've had cover crops as a component of our weed science research program since about the mid-1990s. So we've worked with a number of, of different species of, of cover crops over, over that time, um, ranging from uh, wheat, annual ryegrass, cereal ryegrass. Um, we, we've done a lot more work recently with uh, canola, cereal rye, uh, crimson clover, and, and valenza clover. So those are kind of the species that I've, I've got direct firsthand experience with. So we spent a lot of time looking at uh, different ways to, to terminate, uh, different chemistries for termination, different timings of termination. And then, we, you know, we've also evaluated some of the weed control benefits that, that the cover crops provide as well. So um, kind of a, a broad range of experience with a number of different cover crop species, you know, really looking at it from the, from the weed science aspect, whether that be termination or, or weed suppression. In terms of uh, planting activity, um, so I, you know, I, I get a chance to do a little bit of traveling in the spring. Uh, I have a daughter that plays softball at IU, so I get to go to a few games and see some, uh, some countryside. So last week I was as far north as South Bend and as, as far south as, uh, as Bloomington, Indiana. And what I've noticed is I think the planting progress is probably uh, most advanced in, in the area here where I live. And, and I would guess that um, 30 to 50 percent of the fields have had some kind of seed dropped in them just in kind of this Tippecanoe County, Montgomery County, um, White White County area. Um, as I get further north and further south, the, the planting isn't quite as advanced, particularly up north. 
Um, down south, they've had some wetter soil conditions, and so they, they, they're a few days behind where, where we're at as well. But I would estimate um, down around Bloomington, probably 10 to 20 percent of the area is planted, and up in the South Bend area, I would guess probably 10 percent or, or less of the, the area is planted up in that area. With planting time, we've also got some farmers who have some cover crops out in their fields, and they need to terminate those cover <clears throat> crops. What is cover crop termination and what are farmers looking for when they need to terminate those cover crops? Yeah, so I guess when it comes to cover crop termination, I looked at two different things, you know, mainly chemical termination. There are a few, you know, mechanical or, you know, that roller crimper termination. Um, But this time of year, it's more that chemical termination that they're after. You know, the biggest thing right now that I see is that plant has to be actively growing. So, again, last week helped us out a lot with those temperatures. Um, but, but we still have some species that if it hits 30, 35 degrees at night, that plant goes dormant for three days. Um, so we got to have that warm temperature again for, for three, four days in a row to get it actively growing. So I, I think this time of year when it comes to that chemical termination, being in too big of a hurry or not having that patience is where we get in trouble. That's normally where we get resprays. Um, if we're patient and do it, do it right the first time, um, we have no problems and um, are very successful at that process. Yeah, and I, and I would just echo what uh, um, what, what Jamie talked about. Um, one of the things that we started focusing on you know, probably about 10 or 12 years ago is uh, – you know, we have wide temperature fluctuations in the in the eastern Corn Belt, and it's not uncommon for us to have 50 and 60 degree days, but we might get down in the 30s or even, <clears throat> excuse me, high 20s in, in the in the evening time. And so historically, what we have told people since, you know, since kind of the beginning of no-till is, you know, you want your daytime air temperatures in in the 50s or higher and, and good growing conditions. And just like Jamie said, you want actively growing plants. Actively growing plants are going to absorb the herbicide. They're going to move uh, the mobile herbicides to the sites of action. And you're just going to be more successful in the long run. Um, what I started to pick up on in, in some of our, our research trials and whether it was with uh, termination of a cover crop or whether we were trying to kill weeds, if, if we sprayed too early in a, in a warm-up spell, meaning let's say we sprayed the first day our daytime air temperatures hit 50 degrees, we weren't having near as much success with those burn downs <clears throat> as we were with three or four days of 50 degree air temps and then warmer nighttime temps. When we started investigating the, the impact of nighttime temps um, more thoroughly, what we found is just like Jamie said, when you have these, these cool nighttime temperatures, you kick that plant back into, into a dormant mode again, and your chances of success go, go down. Sometimes they just go down slightly, sometimes they go down pretty significantly. But if you have a system set up with these cool nighttime temps, and you have some other herbicides in the mixture with your termination herbicide. So let's say um, herbicides that have contact activity like triazines or like uh, PPO inhibitors, uh, that contact activity of that herbicide um, combined with the, uh, the cool nighttime temps can result in some antagonism and less than, than ideal termination um, situation. So what we, 
you know, what we'd really like to see people do, and, and I know some of these farm sizes have gotten extremely large and time is precious, is when we're in these challenging weather conditions, that might be the time to either number one, wait until you have warmer nights, or number two, think a little bit about taking those contact herbicides out of the mixture to make sure your translocated herbicides are, are working more effectively. What are the different methods that you can use to terminate cover crops? You've talked a little bit about herbicides. Um, what are some of the other methods that can be used? Well, and, and again, um, Jamie is, is in touch with so many acres. Um, I can kind of talk in general terms, but Jamie, maybe you should con comment on, on what's, what's being used up in your area besides herbicides. Yeah, and, and I would say the main one is herbicides. That's still a high percentage of the acre. There are a few acres that are getting a roller crimper, especially with the cereal rye. There's a fair amount of acres that are getting tillage. Um, you know, I, I see the problem with that being a year where, you know, we stay cool, cloudy, maybe start getting some rain. We, we don't really terminate those cover crops fully. You know, they don't dry out and die. They, they kind of take off and regrow again. So, um, you know, that, that's one of the problems there. But I would say the main thing is that chemical termination. Bill made a good point there. You know, when you start adding multiple products to your spray is normally when we start messing up. You know, when you're going to start with a cover crop and, and early into this, I like to keep it simple and, and, and focus on one thing at a time. Um, I, I get some people that get mad at me because on my farm, there's years I make three trips across the field to terminate the cover crop, apply my residual, and, and maybe go after some broadleafs. There, there's also years that I mix all that together and do it at once. That's depending on, you know, the temperature and, and those products that I'm using. Um, so I think he made a really good point there. Um, and I like to say, let's keep it simple to start out. As you learn and, and gain that knowledge, then we can add those other products and be successful. What's the timing like as far as when you need to be out there in relation to planting the crop? How much time ahead of planting or crop emergence do you need to uh, be terminating these cover crops? Yeah, and that, that, that's a great question, too, that um, <clears throat> there's probably not a single answer that fits every situation. I, I think, you, you, first of all, you have to look at you know, what your goal is for the cover crop. And if your goal is, is lots of biomass to try to gain some of the, the biomass for weed suppression or biomass for building organic matter and things like that, um, obviously, the, you, know, you terminate as late as possible. And if you just think about this year in general, we had a relatively cool March, and so not a lot of weed or cover crop growth in March. But then once, once we've gotten into April, things have kind of taken off, particularly the last two weeks. I mean, the cereal rye that we have south of town here um, has probably grown over a foot in the last 10 days. And so, you know, for experiments where we have the, the goal of, of high biomass, we're, we're going to push that termination off as long as possible. Um, if your goal is, is really protecting the soil during the winter months and you, you're on a soil that, that might have some, some moisture issues in terms of just staying wet or poor internal drainage, then earlier termination can, can be beneficial in, in situations like that. So again, I think it, it varies quite a bit with, with what your objective is. And, um, and, and I don't have a, a one size uh, fits all. Usually when I, 
you know, when I get questions on when should I terminate, how should I terminate and that sort of thing, I ask a lot of questions about what's your goal. Are you doing this for weed control? Are you doing it for soil protection? Are you trying to combine both? Um, and, and then, you know, what is your, what are your soil conditions typically like in the absence of a cover crop? Are they dry? Do you have good internal drainage and, and what type of things do we run into there? I also would add to that is, you know, the, those goals and then also looking at what is your chemical and what is your cover crop? And, you know, I like to break it down into those two categories. You know, I, I'll use glyphosate as an example. You know, it wasn't really intended to be used in, in extremely cold temperatures. It, it was kind of more for warmer temperatures. So, you know, that's just one example. If you're going to use uh, clethodum or something like that, I, I think you have to learn the pluses and minuses of those chemicals. Um, the, the same with a cover crop. You know, th there's a big difference between a clover and, and something like ryegrass. And so, you know, knowing the goals, knowing the chemical, knowing the cover crop, you start adding that together then then we can work with when is the correct timing to make all of it successful. So it sounds like there's a lot of variables that go into making decisions about cover crop termination at planting time. There's a lot going on at planting time. So let's talk about how we're going to scout for and troubleshoot some of these termination issues. What would be the top challenge to a farmer when they're looking to terminate a cover crop and what solution would you suggest for that? Yeah, so so typically when, when my phone starts to ring is is when we've got some of the some multi-species mixtures that the farmer may not have have experience with from a termination standpoint and we've had some some challenging weather that's going to decrease herbicide performance overall. Um, as, a, as a general rule, cereal rye is, is very easy to manage um, com compared to, to some others. Where we get into with some of these more complex mixtures that, you know, particularly if they have some broadleafs in there that glyphosate isn't particularly effective at, um, that, that's where we can run into to more challenges and we really need to know what that species is in order to, to pick the, the appropriate product to supplement glyphosate. Yeah, th those brassicas are a key one that, again, a lot of people think glyphosate will terminate those, and it, it's just not good on them. Um, and, and so we have to throw some form of that broadleaf in there. You know, I think I think Bill's one that taught me many, many years ago, you know, with my burndown program, you know, those different modes of action of using 2,4-D and glyphosate. And, and at that time, I was using canopy. You know, we, we have so many different things in there to help clean that up. We have to view that the same way when we have a cover crop, you know, that we have multiple things that we're not leading to resistance and that we're actually terminating those. Yeah. And, and with regard to, to the brassicas, too, there's there's a number of brassicas that are really sensitive to, to the ALS inhibitors. And so if you're going into into soybean, you know, just simply using a canopy product or a product that has chlorimuron in it, like like Jamie mentioned, that that can can help to, to cover up some of the weaknesses of glyphosate. If you're going into corn, um, what, what I call the bleacher herbicides, the uh, the Callisto um, balance type herbicides can can help on the on the brassicas and on on the legumes. Um, going on to the corn side of the rotation. The other thing that I would add is that particularly if you have broadleaf species, most of the time we're going to have 2,4-D or dicamba in there. We do know that with um, particularly on something like uh, like canola, dicamba is not particularly effective on, on canola. So that's one of the ones that we have to be a, 
you know, a little bit cautious about if that's part of the mixture. We need to make sure we've got a compound in there. And usually the, the bleachers or an ALS inhibitor will take care of canola. Um, but again, it's going to depend on whether you're going back into corn or back into to beans, whether you go with the bleacher versus something like a canopy or classic type product. Have you seen any trouble with resistance to herbicides with um, certain species of cover crops? You know, as, as far as selecting for resistance, the, the answer is no. We, we have had some situations over time where um, you know, we might have some canola that may be uh, resistant to either Liberty or glyphosate. Um, typically, we're not using Liberty in a burn down, and so we're where that canola has, has shown up as a post-emerge treatment of Liberty is done and, and the canola is not controlled or it's not controlled in the burn down with just a straight glyphosate based burn down. That one is cropped up in Southern Indiana. There's been some situations with annual ryegrass where we know there's some glyphosate resistant biotypes of annual ryegrass that have gotten into some mixtures and we've had to go back with something like Clethodem to finish that up if we're on, a, on the soybean side. But in terms of selecting for resistance, no, there are some isolated cases where you may have seed, <clears throat> excuse me, seed that's contaminated. And I'll add to that, one of the biggest things I've seen is normally when we don't get that great termination and it, it looks like there's resistance, it's normally because we did something wrong. We're blending chemicals that maybe don't cooperate together. You know, there's certain generations out here that were you know, all glyphosate, um, you know, now all dicamba or, or enlist. And, and so we don't always remember some of those old chemistries, you know, what does and doesn't mix with clethodum and some of those. And so I've had several cases where different customers, <laughs> they've blended two, three different things together. It's almost neutralized the whole spray mix. And so that's why ahead of time, you know, you need to investigate that label or, or learn that chemical from the retailer or whoever you're buying that from oh, and, and have them look at it. So we know what mixes and, and what's been successful versus running into problems. Jamie, when you're managing all of your acres, how do you scout for possible issues? Well, we're, we're constantly walking those fields. And, you know, I think the best scout is, is the sprayer. You know, I, I run our sprayer on our farm. And, and so I'm across all those acres multiple times. And, you know, I, I'm looking at all the spots. Um, you know, one of the things we've seen over the years is, you know, Bill talked about southern Indiana being wet versus us being dry. You know, when we have a, a wet, saturated soil, we have a cover crop that may be green. It's not actively growing at times. And so, you know, it may be in the back part of a field and, and we don't see it, you know, with going across it with a sprayer, we see those spots, whether they were terminated or not. Um, you know, we're watching other fields and, and talking to people that have the same cover crops we do comparing notes. But I think constantly looking at that field, the biggest problems we've seen is someone has planted a field, sprayed the field, they think it's dying, and they never go back and look at it. By that time, they're calling Bill or I1 to figure out how to bail them out of a problem rather than that continuous scouting of that crop. Yeah, and, and what I would add is the most challenging thing to deal with in those situations is once that crop is out of the ground, there's fewer tools in the toolbox that we can use in a rescue situation. And so... That's why, I, you know, I, I and again, I tend to be really conservative on, on terminating, whether it's weeds or cover crops in, in front of the crop. I like that. I like that stuff to be dead when my crop comes out of the ground. And um, it, we, we always preach to people, make sure your burn down is, is effective, be, you know, before you put yourself in a situation where that crops out of the ground. 
and particularly for these guys that are wanting to grow non-GMO crops where you don't have the ability to use um, some more efficacious herbicides, it, it kind of puts, puts people in a tough place. We're here on the Hat Soil Health Podcast, brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative with Bill Johnson, a professor of weed science at Purdue University, and Jamie Scott, a farmer in Kosciuszko County and member of the Local Soil and Water Conservation District Board. So what advice would you give to a farmer who's looking at uh, terminating their cover crop this year? Maybe they're really ready to get out there and want to get it terminated, but it's not quite ready. What would you uh, advise them to do? Well, I, I think this year, you know, we're just in an, into what I call an Indiana weather pattern. We have a warm spell, and then next week it's supposed to be cool at night almost every night. Um, so I do think you need to kind of factor the weather in next week, and if you're bound and determined to, to terminate, um, you really need to set your mixture up to work. It's, it's not a, uh, next week is not a time to be cutting the rates of your termination herbicides and also putting antagonistic residuals in with your termination program. I mean, those things really need to be kind of separate thought processes. Yeah, and I agree. I, I look at it as, you know, the more strikes that we have against us, the more we have to do right. So when we know the temperatures are, are cold or we know it's going to be cloudy, we've got to do everything else right. We can't you add those chemicals like Bill said. You know, we have to make sure our mixing order, our pHs of the water, we're running the right gallons of water, you know, we can cheat on a few of those things when it's 70, 80 degrees and sunny. When, when it's cold at night or 50 degrees during the day, we have to do everything else right to get that perfect termination. So if we have so many different things that we've got to get right, let's say something comes up, we've got that issue, and maybe they can't get through to you, Jamie, or through to your phone, Bill, you're out in the field what can producers do? What are some of the basic steps that they can take in order to overcome a termination issue that they've encountered? Oh, to, to overcome? Um, yeah. Well, so maybe we could back up, excuse me, a little bit and kind of start with, okay, what what steps can they take next week to, um, to, to minimize the chance that they have to, to fix something? Well, number one, you know, don't spray at 10 gallon per acre carrier volume. If, if, if you need coverage, you need to be up there at 15, 20. Um, if you, if you have contact herbicides, let's say you're adding sharpen with your glyphosate, you know, 20 to 25 gallon per acre carrier volume is very important. Um, ammonium sulfate, um, glyphosate works better with ammonium sulfate, even when you don't have hard water. Um, it just creates a, a form of the herbicide that's more easily taken up into the into the plant. Um, pH pH adjustments. Most glyphosate formulations have an, uh, have a component in it that, that brings the pH of that spray solution down to about five five or so. If for whatever reason you end up with a generic formulation that doesn't have that in there and the, your spray solution pH is up around eight. Um, one of the best ways to make glyphosate work better is to get that spray solution pH down to about five, you know, five, five or somewhere between four, five and five, five. So ammonium sulfate, carrier volume, adjusting the pH of your spray solution for your glyphosate um, herbicide. Um, what we find with with a lot of um, the broadleaf cover crop species and even with some of the grass cover crop species, adding sharpen to glyphosate kind of helps to 
to make the glyphosate a little more effective. Um, that, so that's another thing that, that I would do with, with um, almost every mixture, unless you're on a soil type that where you can't use Sharpen. And then I think the other thing would be too is, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of residual herbicides, but if you have a, if you have something that has some of the, the cover crop species that are tougher to kill, then I would think about making that residual herbicide application with a separate trip across the field so you don't compromise uh, your, your termination program. So those are kind of my, my general rules. Yeah, I would definitely agree with Bill. I, I would much rather eliminate the problem up front. And I've told people, I'd rather you call me every day for two weeks than call me in two weeks with the problem. You know, we'd rather get you to where you're successful and eliminate as many of those problems as possible. Once there is a problem, the one information that I'll offer is that plant has to be actively growing again. So the biggest thing I see is someone mess up that termination. They try to respray. I've had people call me in the springtime and say, I've sprayed it three times. It's not dying. I haven't even sprayed it for the first time yet. So it wasn't actively growing the first time, the second time, or the third time. It's not taking that chemical in. Um, so if you do mess that process up, we have to be patient and get that plant back actively growing. If half the leaves are burnt, you know, if, if it's not actively growing, it's not going to take chemical in again. But, but I agree, the best approach is to get it right the first time. Do your homework ahead of time. You know, know those chemicals. You know, don't be afraid to read that label, you know, as to what that chemical wants. They're telling you what the ideal situation is. You know if you're deviating from that, that you have to do everything else right. Yeah, and, you know, and maybe to another, so you kind of ask what, what should you look out for? Well, basically, you look for plants that are, that are putting on new growth. And so, you know, a lot of times when we have these cool temperatures like this, it seems like uh, you, you spray a field and it just sits there and, and nothing changes. Um, and, and, that's an, and that's an indication that things are working pretty slowly because when we have nice, hot, sunny days and, and well water conditions, you can see weeds start to wilt literally within about 24 to, uh, <clears throat> 24 to 48 hours after an application of glyphosate. They'll start to wilt and then they'll start, you know, turning yellow and dying later on. If, they, if you have plants that are sit, sitting there and they're green, um, take some of those plants, pull them out of the ground, split the stems, and see what the, the lower part of the stem looks like. It still looks like it's active and growing and, and you can see a little bit of new growth, then I would start planning some kind of a, a supplemental strategy to finish that thing off. It may not be the right time to do it yet, uh, but at least you're prepared. And if you're, if you're mentally prepared for it, you'll be able to, to have more time to, to make a decision on, on how to follow up with another termination pass. So it sounds like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure when you're taking a look at some of these cover crop termination issues. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, again, I, I think, you know, for the most part, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not rocket science, but with a little bit of planning and with the idea that I'm not going to skimp on a step or a little bit of cost up front, um, you can you can avoid a lot of problems just by, you know, just by taking a, a very... Um, determined and, and um, mechanical approach to it. And patience is another word that I've been hearing um, you talk about throughout the conversation. Just be patient. Don't get into the field too early. Don't start 
applying that herbicide too early as well. Yes, yes, I, I agree. Um, you know, you, you really, in order for foliar herbicides to work, you have to have actively growing plants. And that that doesn't change whether it's a cover crop or a weed or, or, a, or a crop plant. So thinking about um, this particular planting season, are there challenges that you, Jamie, or Bill, you've seen farmers face this year that may be different from previous years? I, I would say one of the biggest problems I've seen so far is, you know, we went from basically zero to 100, or meaning we were awful cold and we hit 80 last week. And so I had a lot of farmers that were fixing tile, clearing fence rows, doing some stuff. Now they want to spray this week. Um, you know, I'd have much rather sprayed last week and do my fence row and tile work this week. And it's just because of what Bill said earlier, you know, with that more days of the warmer temperature, more sunlight, those chemicals are going to work better. Um, so the biggest problem I see now is, is farmers that they see their neighbor was successful terminating last week, this week and next week may not get the same results. And it's again, because of those nighttime lows and, in you know, cloudy, you know, misty conditions, um, be patient and wait for that next warm spell and be ready to spray then and terminate. Yeah. And I, and I would agree with that. I mean, we went from winter to summer in one week. And so then that, that, you know, and then you see your, your neighbor's tractors running and you feel the pressure to get out there and, and, and start doing something. So I think that's, you know, that, that's always a, that's a challenge when we have years like this. So with that all in mind, what would be your number one takeaway that you would want a listener to think about as they start to um, start this process of terminating cover crops and then planting their cash crop? Well, I think the biggest thing is to have a plan, not only A, but B, C, D, you know, on down the line. I've had years, um, you know, I look back to 2012, 2019, you know, maybe a year like this where, you know, we sat around all winter and, and you know, had a game plan and, and the spring didn't develop like that. So so have, you know, a backup plan and, and um, you know, be patient and, and follow what's right. You know, maybe not always what worked last year. It, it's just like, you know, people say, well, when do you plant corn? We've we've learned how to adapt to, to when we plant corn. The same we'll learn to adapt of when we terminate those cover crops. Yeah, and I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, I do think, you know, one, one of the things that's, that's becoming obviously a lot more common over the last, you know, five years or so is, is planting beans early. You know, there may be situations that because um, the the early season penalty for not terminating a cover crop on soybean yield are are less um, occur less than it than it does with corn. Maybe it's a situation where if you got bean fields ready to go, those are what you focus on when you have some challenging weather conditions, and you sort of save the the corn crop for when you have. Um, better conditions for terminating your cover crop because you do have the ability in soybeans to go back in um, post-emergence with either glyphosate, glyphosate liberty, dicamba, 2,4-D and kind of fix some of the things you may not have done right on the front end and it doesn't cost you yield. Um, on corn, there's a little bit less room for making those mistakes and so if I had to offer some insight, that, that would be what, what I would offer. 
And I agree with that. You know, Bill makes a great comment. You know, our farm here, we divide it into what I call problems as far as, you know, it may be beans or it may be, you know, we're going after mare's tail on the cover crop at the same time. You know, that's first out of the barn with our sprayer, then then the corn may be second, you know, the next thing third. We break it down like that. And so that's a great comment. You know, we, we don't worry about the whole farm. We worry about what's the most concerning first and, the, and then worry about, you know, getting to the rest as we have time. So breaking it down into manageable chunks as opposed to trying to look at everything all at once. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, in, in different species of cover crops and things that we know we have time with. I mean, you know, again, Bill mentioned cereal rice starting to grow. You know, we know those species of cover crops that are going to grow at a faster rate in the spring. And, you know, so those are higher on our list. You know, wheat is one of those of mine, whether it be volunteer wheat or wheat as a cover crop, where I want to terminate that thing as fast as I can in the spring. It, it just starts doing things that are negative to that cash crop for me. I, I want to get that one terminated. And so it's always high on my list. If we came out of wheat, put a cover crop in there and, you know, we want to get that terminated. Jamie Scott, a Kosciuszko County farmer, and Bill Johnson, professor of weed science at Purdue. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? I can think of one thing that it's it's along with termination of cover crops, but it's different pests that we're going to see at the same time. And, you know, um, Purdue does a great job of sending us bulletins of what's in our area. But, you know, there's different times where we have, um, you know, cutworms or armyworms or different things that if we're going to terminate the cover crop, we can add those components in. Um, and again, be scouting for those at the same time we're looking at cover crops. Yeah, and I, and I guess what, what, what I would say, again, my, my comments are going to be weed science related because that's what I know the best. You know, I, I do think that we have to, we have to realize that, um, you know, we're really not in a world anymore where a single herbicide does everything for every purpose. And I think we're going to be um, continuing to, to educate, um, you know, a whole new generation of people on how to use multiple herbicides to do the things that we need to do to grow a successful corn or soybean crop or whatever crop that we're growing. And so understanding what weeds that what weeds or cover crops that you're trying to terminate and understanding the strengths and weaknesses of each herbicide on each species, I think is is kind of a critical piece of information. And, and I look at it as, as sort of institutional knowledge as as people get more familiar using these things year after year, you develop this institutional knowledge and then that just kind of builds um, for your, your weed control program for next year. If farmers wanted to learn more on this topic, what resources would you like to point them to? Oh yeah, good question. I mean, um, weed control guides written by um, the universities and it doesn't have to be produced. There's a lot of good ones out there. Michigan State has a good one. Uh, Wisconsin has a good one. You know, I like ours, but I think, um, you know, almost every weed control guide has got a section in it where cover crop termination is, is discussed. And then just whatever you can pick up out of newsletter articles as well. And, and obviously relying on, on experts, local experts like Jamie, who's, who deals with a lot of acres in, in his part of the world. Yeah, I, I think one of the big differences now compared to, you know, 20 years ago is all of us have learned so much and, you know, ask those questions. And, you know, there's a lot of experts 
Um, you know, one other thing that we really didn't mention was the termination of cover crops. I'm worried about planting a cover crop next year, too. So, you know, be careful with some of those long-term residuals and stuff that, you know, that we can have a successful cover crop again next year, um, you know, which is a beneficial part to what we do. So, I know planting time can be a really crazy time of year with a lot going on. So I want to express my appreciation for taking the time to talk with us for the Hat Soil Health podcast. Uh, We really appreciate you um, sharing your knowledge with us. This episode of the Hoosier Ag Today Soil Health Podcast has been brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about their efforts and see a schedule of events at ccsin.org. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, create your riches below the surface with healthy soil.